Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. It is a joy to be with you. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you meet me in John chapter 13? As you turn to John chapter 13, uh, Dr. Whitfield, thank you for that. Uh, Large gratitude to Dr. Aiken for his tireless efforts for his leadership here. Uh, One of my former professors, Dr. David Hogg, um, who was in reality the first Canadian I'd ever really met and consequently liked. Um, Also, shouts out to Dr. Strickland and the work that he's doing here in his office. I find myself imbued with much gratitude being here with you all this morning, despite the fact that many of you don't know me from Adam's house cat, but that's okay. Um, I have a task before me to open God's word, particularly out of John chapter 13, with which we'll do here shortly. We'll be in verses 1 through 20. When you get there, say, oh yeah. If you need a minute, say, hold up, brother. Fantastic. Let's ride. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm gonna read verse 17 again. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm gonna read verse 17 again. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. 
I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture was fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place. And when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one whom I send. This is the word of the Lord. Before considering it, we should pray. Let's pray. Ancient of days, in your great mercy, would you hear our prayer? Come and do what we are unable to, which is to discern rightly what you would have for our souls this morning. Spirit of God, we need your help. So would you, Holy Spirit, the one who has penned the words on these pages, would you be our guide and our interpreter this morning? We love you so much. It's in your great name we pray. Amen. About five years ago, my wife and I had the great privilege of helping to start a house church in downtown Birmingham. And part of doing church in downtown Birmingham means that you have a transient church community. There were very often vagrants and houseless individuals who would come and be a part of our worship services, one of whom, his name was Ray, and Ray and I got to know each other pretty well. Ray was a man who was missing all of his teeth. He had no hair and he was morbidly obese. Now Ray back in the 70s had flock of seagull, long blonde hair, beautiful pearly white teeth and was fit. What happened was that Ray and drugs got a little too close for a decade and a half and it fried Ray's brain, but God brought him to our church and we began to minister to him in a way that was really special. He came to know Jesus, began to be discipled, and then one day he asked me, he said, hey, pastor, will you help me clean my apartment? Now, this is the man with whom I had to become acquainted with ACDC and Black Sabbath, and I was listening to music that where I'm from, we don't listen to, but all in an effort to become all things to all men, right? So he says, Pastor, will you help me clean my apartment? I say, yeah, I'll help you. And I'm assuming I'm gonna to go to his apartment, an hour and a half or so of work, and, and it's gonna be over. Well, I go to his apartment, his Section 8 high-rise there in downtown Birmingham. I walk past a few prostitutes, I get on the elevator, I head upstairs, there's two guys playing dice in the corner. Uh, I see some needles on the ground, this is all par for the course. I get to his apartment, I knock on the door, I, oh, he opens the door and a smell hits me in the face of which to this day I've not smelled anything like it. It was a combination between uh, human waste and trash. And he opens the door and there's shame on his face and I walk into the apartment and on the floor, it looks like he spilled about three liter Cokes all over the place and has let them dry. And in his kitchen, there's plates piled up in the sink, on the counters, and there's roaches crawling around on the counters. And then I go over to the refrigerator and I open the refrigerator and I get hit in the face with black mold. And there's mold everywhere. And I haven't even walked in the living room, which is uh, uh, unchartable, unplottable, if you will. I walk into the bedroom, he says, wait a minute, slow down, I've got bed bugs, you wanna be careful in there. So I'm like, okay, cool. And I turn right around and I look inside of the bathroom and there's human waste all over the bathroom. I immediately think to myself, what have I gotten myself into? 
So I say, okay, hey, I'll be back. So I run to the store and I get some supplies and I immediately think about turning around and just heading back to the house because this man can't be helped. But no, I'm gonna do the good Christian thing. I'm gonna serve my neighbor. And there came a point when I was on my knees wiping human excrement from the floor and the base of a toilet when I thought to myself, why am I doing this? I'm a pastor. I travel everywhere and I preach Jesus to people. Why am I on my knees serving someone in a manner that is not fit my title? Well, this morning, our text shows us a God who finds himself in similar positions. As we look at the humility of Christ this morning, I'd like to preach a sermon entitled, The God Who Kneels. And I want to prove this morning from these 20 verses that the Passover lamb washes the feet of his own accomplishing their share with him so that the nations might be blessed. I'm going to read that twice more. My thrust, my thesis this morning is that the Passover lamb washes the feet of his own, accomplishing their share with him so that the nations might be blessed. Once more, the Passover lamb washes the feet of his own, accomplishing their share with him so that the nations might be blessed. Verses one through three introduces the setting of this pericope we find that it is during Passover. And if you remember back to Exodus chapters 10 through 16, we get the narrative of God delivering the people of Israel out of Egypt. And at that Passover meal, there was a lamb, yum, yum, unleavened bread, that's nasty, and bitter herbs. But this meal was to symbolize the sacrifice it would take for freedom. And it would foreshadow the similar action required for the emancipation of God's people from the clutches of sin and death. And we know the narrative here. Jesus is preparing to walk the road to die. He's preparing to to die. More specifically, he's preparing the disciples that he's going to die. And just as the blood on the doorposts and the lintels of people in Egypt meant their freedom, so too would the blood of Christ by faith on the doorposts and lintels of our hearts mean our freedom, but the disciples, they're slow on the uptake. But John's reference here to the Passover is significant for us because we see that Jesus is our Passover lamb. For while that night in Egypt, the firstborn died during the first Passover, right after John 13, in just a couple hours, it would be death who would die for the first and final time. You see, with Christ being our Passover lamb, this text invites us to behold the lamb of God who takes away the wrath of the Father. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And he's about to give the ultimate lesson in what it means to follow him. Now, where I'm from, we had dudes on a block called OGs, right? OGs, original gangsters. Now, these men were generally very adept at their business, and their business was usually being illicit street pharmacists. And what that often meant was that you were constantly learning lessons in and around them. And if an OG wanted to teach you something, he would say, young buck, let me learn you something right quick right? 
I think we get the imperative that Jesus is the, or the indicative rather, that Jesus is the Passover lamb. He, get, he sets the scene by being the lamb, caring for his own. Now he's getting ready to teach us the lesson. Second point, we see that this Passover lamb washes the feet of his own. And here we find something incredibly scandalous. In the washing of the feet of his own, we find a God who kneels. Now, when you consider the gods of the pantheon throughout history and throughout the world today, they stand upon the foundation of pride and strength being venerated. Some of the Greek variety even drawing strength from the worship of the people they are said to control. And yet, if any of them would be found on their knees with a towel around their waist, they would immediately be removed from the pantheon of the gods. And yet, here is Christ, who Philippians 2 says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, making himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, And being born in the likeness of men, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death upon a cross, the one who was God, on his knees. And to really get the weight of this, you gotta understand foot washing. You gotta understand that these dudes are walking around in these sandals all day long. Dirt caked up, toenails long, toes looking like they throwing up gang signs. And this service of foot washing was reserved for the lowliest of servants. Jews didn't wash other Jews' feet. The slaves of Jews didn't wash feet. This task was reserved for Gentile slaves. So here's Jesus, God incarnate, on his knees, condescending to the form of a servant as he condescended to being a man. Furthermore, when Jesus takes off of his outer garments and he ties a towel around his waist, he now is donning the garb, the wear, the uniform of a servant. The very fact that Jesus would kneel, tie a towel around his race, he provides the illustration and now he's going to teach the lesson. And here it is, see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the God who loves his own so much that he, preserve, he performs a task reserved for untouchables. You see, my friends, I reminded myself of being on the floor with Ray that day thinking, why am I doing this? This is a task reserved for untouchables. And I can't help but to see this task. And I'm saying if God washed feet, then there's nothing that I can't say I won't do. And yet so many of us are in school studying for positions in ministry where though we say to ourselves that this is not for power, this is not for prominence, this is not for position, we can't help but to think that that platform will provide a position for us to exert our power on a group of people. And you may not want to be honest or real about it, but many of us view ministry as a means to an end rather than Jesus Christ being the end of himself. We want to be served. We want to be paid well. We want to be honored. We want to be venerated. 
We want to be worshiped. And yet God in Christ himself did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is scandalous. There is part of me that doesn't want to worship of God who would bow and condescend to wash feet. It shows too much weakness. And yet there was weakness on Calvary that day when Christ would offer his life for us. Weakness. You're the Messiah. The chosen one, the one who's going to restore Israel back to prominence. You're the one who's supposed to deliver us. And yet here you are on this wood, dead. Failure, weakness, and all the disciples knew it. As N.T. Wright would later write, it's as if they all knew when he died, they backed the wrong horse. You can't be the Messiah because the Messiah can't die. And yet, this is precisely what must happen. The Passover lamb must die so that he might ransom his own. But here's where it starts to get good. Jesus washes the feet of his own so that, thirdly, he might accomplish their share with him. Now, I really appreciate Peter. Peter tends to get a bad rap. I understand. You out here slicing off dudes' ears. You out here, you know what I'm saying, uh, denying the Christ. I get it. Peter gets a bad rap. But I really appreciate what Peter's doing. Peter's the only one with a lick of sense here. All the other disciples are lining up like, yeah, the Messiah's washing my feet. And Peter's like, nah, baby, you ain't washing my feet. (laughs) What does he say? In verse six, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus says, what I'm doing, you do not understand, but after you will understand And Peter, indignant, says, you shall never wash my feet. Now, I love it when people say never to God. Like, you're going to eat them words. You know better than that. <laughs> but I love Jesus' response. I love Jesus' response. Peter is speaking out of his depth. He's out of his league. He's speaking out of turn. And Jesus says so sweetly in verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. There is the sense in which this washing of Jesus foreshadows the activity of salvation. That the salvific activity of God on our behalf by faith begins with an initial step of God on us. But then Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share. With me, there's an eschatological reality tied to that term share. Maybe you remember when these boys had their mama speak on behalf of them, asking about who was going to be greatest. Or maybe you remember them having a conversation about who would sit at the right hand of Jesus in a seat of prominence, those who might be worshipped in the eschaton by all the other uh, peons that would be below them. And what does Jesus say? He says the way up is down. He says those who seek to be first must first be last because the first will be last and the last shall be first. And here he says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, I like this 
because this means that there is a tension here between me not wanting to be served by the Lord and yet my hope and joy is in the Lord serving me. But that don't seem right. The the product, the tension is the Lord serving us and our self-righteous tendencies to want to wash ourselves. I try to wash myself. If I preached a particularly bad sermon, I try to wash myself by saying that at least I'm not as poor of a preacher as that guy. If I find myself having a particularly bad day as a husband or a father, I can say, well, at least I'm still here. Self-justifying all the time. I try to wash myself. There's women all across the world trying to wash their face because some girl said, do it. Girl, wash your face. In a turn of self-helpism, easy believism, and hey, you're enough-ism. It's the exact opposite message that Jesus gives to Peter. Baby, you're not enough. It's why I have to wash you. Others try to wash themselves by reversing the karma. We live in a world where people are putting out good vibes into the universe, saying that the universe will bring it back. Movies that will tell you that if you're a good person and you put out good vibes, you're gonna get all that back. And now we get to pastor people that have been dashed upon the hopes of a universe that is inanimate and cares nothing about them. We try to wash ourselves when the idols that we believe in, idols that we serve, things we love that is not Jesus, we find our strength in the delights of our hearts through a week that is not Jesus and still others. We try to wash themselves, make themselves righteous using a smoke screen of wokeness. Progressive white people and black people alike showcasing their journey along the path of racial literacy, want to wash themselves and saying, at least I'm not like them. And we've conditioned ourselves to think, especially in seminary, that God loves me more if I make good grace. And when we consider the things and the ways in which we try to wash ourselves, our idols become readily present to us. And I can't help but to think of that old hymn that my grandmama used to sing. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I can't help but to think about that fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, where sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains washed. I can't help but to think about that old sin that Jesus paid it all. To borrow a quote from an old black preacher, if it's not true that Jesus paid it all, that I can wash myself, then we need to stop singing that hymn and instead start singing, Jesus paid some of it. Or Jesus went half in on it. Or Jesus put it down on layaway, but I came through and I finished the rest of the payment and I washed myself. That is false. 
If I do not wash you, then you have no part with me. Jesus has to do the work. And in my congregation in Memphis, the thing that I see more often than not are people who believe that once they place their faith in this risen Savior, that somehow they'll be disqualified from their love by their own sin because they've been trying to wash themselves. And I've got to remind them constantly, as you may have to in your own ministries, that when your faith is in the right object, it matters not about your significance or your ability to obey only. It's about him because the same thing that saves you keeps you. And if your faith is in the object of Christ, then he keeps you. It's the idea of one and done, kind of like Anthony Davis. Or maybe you might know, I'm in the middle of nowhere, North Carolina, so let me use a culturally appropriate uh, illustration, Vanilla Ice. Maybe you're a little bit older and you might know about Dexie's Midnight Riders or Men Without Hats, or perhaps you're a 90s baby and were raised in the 2000s. You remember the Baja men who let the dogs out. We ain't heard from them dudes since they dropped that track. And here's the point. The point is, if your faith is in the object is finished, and I think when we read the words of Jesus, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. That is a present washing and a washing to come. If the lamb washes you, then you are secure, but there's some tension in the text. It it seems like Jesus says this, and then it seems like he leads to a different place where maybe this isn't true. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, he says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Hold up, Jesus. But is completely clean and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said that all of you are clean. So this is, this is interesting. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. But now he's talking about feet constantly needing to be washed. Like, Jesus, I know they feet funky, but what do you mean? There's a spiritual meaning here. Obviously, he knows the ones in which who are for him and are in his corner and the one whom is his enemy. That's Judas. But this reference to frequent foot washing, uh, it's similar to the occasional bath versus a frequent foot washing. So my wife is from Central Florida, which means that Central Floridians have the same footwear as cave people. Walk around without shoes on all the time. My wife loves to walk barefoot. Now, if you grew up in Appalachia, it might be similar. I grew up in a part of Birmingham where we went outside all the time. My mama would give me whoopings if we didn't have shoes on. So I got soft, tender feet, okay? My wife has these thick, beautiful, thick, calloused feet. And one of the things that I had to get used to was her washing her feet at the end of the day. Like, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, why are you just washing your feet? Why don't you just get in the bath? Because, you know, for me, I, I'm used to wearing shoes. She's not. She's got her feet, and I appreciate it because they're not funky when she comes to the bed. Uh, but she's washing her feet, like, every single night. But it provides a really beautiful picture. Some people are walking aisles and getting rebaptized, wanting to take a bath again when they only need to realize their faith in the right object means no longer full-fledged showers, but foot washing. This foot washing is a reference to constant repentance, a daily pursuit of Jesus, a constant washing of the feet. Now, I like this because the tension here is what do you do with someone who feels like they're not saved? 
What do you do when someone comes to your office and they say, well, pastor, I, I, I made this profession of faith or I walked this aisle or I got baptized at this point. Like how, like, how am I supposed to think? Like, and yet the sin in my life makes me feel like God doesn't love me. Am I a believer? Am I a child of God? I look at this passage of scripture and I'm saying, has Jesus washed your feet? Have you been washed by the blood of the lamb? Is your faith in him? And if their answer is yes, then we go on to have a conversation about, yeah, we're going to still sin. And this is the beauty of the Christian life, that those who love Jesus are swift to repent. And those who love the Savior are swift to keep short accounts with God. In particular, in Jesus, we are renewed spiritual beings, and yet we still jacked up. We can't shake it. We can't get rid of it. So this reference to washing except for feet is the constant reminder that, Lord, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. It's a call for even the professionals among us who are handling God's word and are acquainted with God's word to not get confused that service for Jesus does not equate intimacy with him. I'm going to say that again because some of y'all didn't hear me. That service for Jesus does not equate intimacy with him. So this reference to constant foot washing is a reference to a constant soul-nourishing intimacy with Christ. The Passover lamb washes the feet of his own, accomplishing their share with him. Why? Fourth and finally, so that the nations might be blessed. As we wrap up here in verses 16 through 20, we get, I think, a message for us. We've seen the picture of a God who kneels. We've seen the picture of foot washing. But now Jesus is getting ready to give us the lesson. He's given us the indicative, and now he's given us the imperative. He's given us a picture. Here comes the lesson. And why does Jesus washing feet matter for us today? Especially in a place like we're in now, and I say this, having gone through a rigorous uh, MDiv training of myself, I, I, I get where you are. But I think the message here for us is that servants serve and messengers deliver. But neither is the master nor the message. That servants serve and messengers deliver, but neither is the master nor the message. Here is Jesus, who though he was God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. And yet, he washes feet. And if God kneels to wash feet, exhibiting the highest Christian ethic, this is the ethic of the believer in one picture. That means no matter the job, no matter the cost, our primary position is as a servant. And we, as those who lead God's people in worship, get to wash feet. And I don't say have to. We don't have to wash feet. We get to wash feet. All of the dirt and the funk and the fungus and the cracks and crevices, even the toe jam behind your little toe. 
We get to wash feet because it puts us in the same vein, in the same conversation as Christ himself. Jesus washed feet. We serve a God who kneels to wash feet. Think about that. So as I'm there on the floor, washing raised toilets, I'm thinking about a God who kneeled to wash me who took a young man who was lost and dead in sin up to his eyeballs and self-justification and righteousness. I was going to hell, doused in gasoline on scholarship. And Jesus became so beautiful to me. He sent the spirit of God opening my eyes to see his beauty, allowing me to place faith in him, regenerating a cold heart, making it warm again. And this God doesn't say, hey, look to your past and continue to make atonement for your past. No, this God doesn't say, hey, look at all these things you've done. I'm keeping records. I keep a long account of what you've done. Uh Uh-uh. He tells me in Romans 8, 1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That the son of man whom he has set free is free indeed. And he has told me in Galatians that it is not the one who is born a Jew outwardly who is a, who is a son of God. Nuh-uh. It's the one who has faith in the seed of Abraham who is a son. I'm looking at a God who served to wash my feet so ain't nothing I can say I won't do. And I hope and pray that as you consider the people that God has placed around you to serve that you would see this and believe. Let's pray. Great God in Christ, in your name I call that you have called us and received us as your own. Not through some merit, right, or claim, but by your gracious love alone. We strain to glimpse your mercy seat and seek you, find you kneeling at our feet. Then take the towel and break the bread and humble us and call us friends. Suffer and serve till all are fed and show us how grandly love intends to work till all creation sings, to fill all worlds, to crown all things. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, We hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for his glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.